0: Wow, what a week that has been. A lot's happened in the last seven days in crypto. Probably too much for us to cover in 30 minutes, but we're going to give it a go. So my name is Ben Floyd. I'm your host for today. We are joined by the fantastic David Duong, our Head of Institutional Research, Greg Sutton and Tammy Yao, two CES traders, and Alessandro Lozy, a Senior Blockchain Researcher. Today, we also have two special guests, Brian Foster and Greg Waisaki on our institutional sales team. So to our agenda, we're going to start with Tammy Yao, who's going to run through a crypto market update. We're then going to hand over to a conversation with Greg and Brian to run through what our institutional sales team are seeing. I think it's fair to say that we've had the FTX events dissected a number of different ways on Twitter so far. But one view that we want to bring you is what our institutional sales team are seeing, what they're hearing, what clients are saying, how they're feeling. We're then going to run through trade flows, what we're seeing on the desk, what we're seeing on DeFi. Um, has Alessandro and his team been able to get any closer to wallet movements we've seen? And then we'll hand over to David to run through macro. Seriously big macro week last week, so we don't want to leave that uncovered. So without further ado, Tammy, over to you.
1: Thanks, Ben. To say last week was one of the craziest weeks in crypto feels like an understatement. Well, last week was quite a busy one in the macro space, we had CPI and a US midterm elections But all of these was trumped by the very dramatic collapse of one of the biggest crypto exchanges, FTX. Now, much has already been said on Twitter and on the news on FTX's collapse. But just a quick summary of events since last Tuesday. Binance has walked away from the deal. FTX's withdrawals were reported to be up to $8 billion. And on Friday, FTX finally filed for bankruptcy together with Alameda Research, FTX US and 133 associated companies. The Financial Times also reported that FTX had only $900 million in liquid assets against $8.9 billion in liabilities on the eve of their bankruptcy. Now, to make matters worse, a day after it filed for bankruptcy, more than $600 million was siphoned from FTX's crypto wallet. At the same time, Reuters also reported that SBF built a backdoor to FTX in an effort to change financial records and move funds without alerting others. With all of that going on, the seven-day price action of the market was not as bad as you'd expect. After the CPI, while the S&P 500 rebounded almost 6% over the week, and the dollar index saw its largest one-day drop in a decade, BTC and ETH fell more than 20% on news of the collapse, but is now ending week-on-week only about 10% lower. According to Kaiko, BTC's 30-day rolling correlation with U.S. equities fell to as low as 0.17, its lowest level since November 2021 while its correlation to ETH shot up to its highest level since May of this year. In the dearest space, BTC's one-week-at-the-money implied vol doubled to as high as 124% from 50-odd percent just the week before, while a similar metric for ETH, reached as high as 180% from 70-plus levels the week before. With the ETH-BTC ratio in a green week-on-week, ETH seems to be doing better than BTC. This is while ETH officially turns deflationary as the amount of ETH burn spikes in the midst of the market turmoil. According to Ultrasound.money, the annual supply of ETH is now at negative 0.08% per year. This means ETH is being burned at a faster rate than what is being minted. Now with the loss of trust in centralized exchanges, the trading volume of Uniswap has increased with V3 and V2 burning more than 2,300 ETH in seven days, which is causing ETH to fall into deflation. In fact, according to Nansen, Uniswap has had more volume of ETH traded than any centralized exchange in the last 24 hours. The DeFi Pulse Index is also firmly in the red as investors pivot out of the riskier, higher beta alts into the majors and sables. In this period of stress, Tether also de initially falling to as low as spot 987, though the discount has since tightened to around spot 9989 now, which still reflects continued selling pressure in the stablecoin. This swift and dramatic collapse feels like one of the worst hits to the industry given the scale of damage. According to the New York Times, FTX paid high yields to companies that stored assets on its platform, which led many crypto startups and retail to treat it as a bank. Now retail institutions and investors are suffering heavy losses. And in the next couple of months, we might start to see more headlines of victims coming out and disclosing the extent of their hit. Next, looking at underperformers of the week, Solana Soul and Solana based Decentralized Exchange Serum, which was created by SBF, were both badly hit last week given the close association of these products to him and given the large amount of these liquid tokens that are being held by Alameda. Crow also took a hit after reports surfaced that Crypto.com is holding low-liquid cryptocurrencies like Shiba Inu and its own token Crow as reserves, which reportedly make up 40% of the exchange total assets. While well, it does seem like we are only seeing waves of negative headlines, not all is gloom and doom. Exchanges are now rushing to offer proof of reserves to regain the trust of investors. This is a step in the right direction, though it will need to be followed by a proof of user balances to get the full picture of an exchange solvency. Lastly, to end on a positive note, Binance founder CZ announced yesterday that he is setting up an industry recovery fund with the aim of helping projects in the liquidity crisis who are otherwise strong. OKX has also similarly announced a $100 million fund, while Huobi and Tron's founder is set to be joining Binance's rescue plan. That's all from me in a markets update. Back to you, Ben.
0: Thanks so much, Tammy. I mean, wow, what a volatile week. Um, some huge movements there and, and obviously still some potential contagion there, looking at CRA down 45% almost. And obviously Solana and Serum feeling the pain as well. But now I want to transition to speaking with Greg and Brian on our institutional sales team. You guys have obviously had a pretty busy week speaking to a number of different clients and, and really kind of helping them understand what's been happening at FTX. And the situation's been moving so, so quickly. I can imagine it was a pretty tough job. And you guys have probably had some pretty late nights and pretty early mornings. But but Greg, you, you cover asset managers, ETFs, traditional hedge funds. Brian, you cover asset managers, introducing brokers, fintechs, and you're also members of our ventures committee. So you have some pretty unique views on what's going on in the market. So Greg, just starting off with you, like, what, what have you been seeing? What have you been hearing from clients?
2: Sure, yeah, I think just to uh, provide some context here, I, th- I think this FTX news was a, a bit of a tape bomb even for investors that were uh, invested there. Um, post the ETH merge and broader macro sell off, many of the institutional investors uh, within this cohort were setting up to add risk back on in 4Q. Um, the macro backdrop suggested the potential for peak inflation, potential for peak Fed tightening, um, you had the yield curve almost 60% uh, inverted, so you're getting to the point where investors were coming back to the space looking um, at crypto as a, as a potential way to play some type of high-beta risk-on uh, expression in, in, in 4Q. Um, I think this sentiment can still prevail before year-end if uh, market conditions stabilize in, in the wake of FTX. but. Um, you know, clearly this this set us back a little bit. Um, I'd categorize, you know, the the three different groups: uh, asset managers, macro funds, and and crossover funds, as looking at the space somewhat differently. Um, asset managers continue to onboard, and and this event has added an extra layer of due diligence on the asset class as as a whole, perhaps, but um, has definitely confirmed their decision to use Coinbase. As their primary custodian and and trading uh, counterpart i'd say macro funds um there's been a lot to do in macro this year as as i'm sure we know um arguably the the golden age of macro uh given the unwind of of central bank balance sheets so crypto hasn't necessarily been a dedicated focus um, for a lot of them in, in q3 but funds that have had the extra risk budget to deploy um, heading into year end, crypto was certainly emerging as a um, high beta, risk on um, expression. Uh, so again, I think this took a little wind out of the sails, but but I I don't expect it to um, to ultimately uh, you know push any of these investors away from the asset class uh, on a permanent basis. Um, and then lastly, I would say crossover funds. These are funds that cross over into private markets in addition to public uh, equity and, and, and bond holdings and, and really look to own the entire cap structure, um, typically in, in a more thematic fashion. Ethereum has been a core long-term holding uh, for the Web 3.0 uh, theme. And um, from my perspective, sentiment on, on ETH really has not changed much post FTX. Um, so I, I, I'll, I'll leave it there.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I guess like amongst all this, uh, ETH went deflationary, and we're seeing huge amount of volumes move to to kind of Uniswap um, in a similar way we did um, kind of many uh, many quarters ago. But I'm curious. So that's actually painting a, a pretty pretty good picture, which is really really re- reassuring. Have you had any client conversations that are really much more challenging, where people are just just dropping the asset class and, and moving on?
2: You know, frankly, um, it hasn't been. As bearish beneath the surface, you know. I think um, for, for many of the institutional investors that have been doing the work on this space for, you know, multiple quarters at this point, um, you know, that existential risk of what crypto actually is and will it exist in the future. We don't get that question. Um, I think many are viewing this as um, you know, a specific uh, a company event. Um, clearly impacts market structure in the near term. Um, but frankly, it's uh, it's it could be a potential market clearing event similar to what we saw um, in Q2. Uh, Q2, we actually had a, a market clearing event for a lot of these unsustainable DeFi tokens and strategies. And a lot of the feedback that we got from large institutions was that that was a necessary step uh, in getting to the right place for, for this to be a, a, a longer term Uh, investable asset class. and I I think a lot of sentiment um, is going to end up being the same here. Um, We've heard analogs such as Lehman Brothers or MF Global. Um, If you you look back to uh, what the implication was of of each of those, Lehman, it took markets about six months to stabilize, but clearly a much different situation, systematic risk that ultimately required central bank intervention. uh, here uh, we're we're a very different situation, much more contained within crypto um, and uh, likely more impactful than MF Global, which took about a month to stabilize uh, asset prices back then. So I would categorize it as as something in the middle. Um, you know somewhere between that one to to six month time frame, likely air on the side of of faster rather than than slower um, is is the sentiment that i'm I'm picking up on.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's super interesting with um with the, the macro uh, kind of potentially taking a turn last week as well. Certainly for those of us in crypto, you almost kind of didn't see that at all. Um, and I wonder if uh, if we had have not seen the FTX events, where uh, ETH, for example, would have been would have been trading. Uh, I'm I'm curious just picking up one of your comments there around the narrative around ETH. Is is there a difference there between how people are thinking about Bitcoin versus how they're thinking about ETH and maybe other layer ones or or, or kind of layer two technologies? I think
2: so. I think um, Ethereum continues to be um, uh, the the addressable market for what Ethereum is for many traditional uh, finance investors is is tangible, um, especially for um, those that are looking to buy the building blocks of a longer-term Web3 investment theme. Um, so I, I, I do think that Ethereum sort of falls into uh, a, a category of its own in that in that respect. I also think that um, just the expectation for regulation for Bitcoin and Ethereum um, is, uh, is 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 a bit higher. I think uh, most believe that we'll get some clarity um, earlier on on those two assets specifically, and there's there's some guidelines that they can already start to. Uh, follow in terms of creating a, a mental map <clears throat> around Bitcoin and Ethereum, which which makes it a little bit easier, I think, to stomach uh, in, in, in terms of um, a, a long position.
0: And Brian, you, you cover some of the, the large asset managers, ETFs, um, and also introducing brokers that have a range of different clients and, and fintechs. Like, what, what have you been hearing on your side?
3: Yeah, sure, sure, Ben. Uh, first of all, I, I, I think Greg, um, you know, painted the bigger picture very well. So I would would echo his views. Um, With respect to a lot of the conversations I've had in the last couple of days, um, for the largest partners, there's been a lot of uh, kind of refreshing of of fundamental, you know, due diligence questions. And so, um, you know, that's to be expected. We're fortunate to have great answers to those those questions here. Um, But, you know, we are reminding our clients as they come back with these inquiries that, know, all the ways that we are vastly different than, um, you know, some of these firms that are operating offshore with a a totally different model. So, um, you know, we're discussing things like our qualified custodial status with our New York limited purpose trust company, how we're regulated by the NYDFS. We're a fiduciary under New York state banking law through our custodian. Um, We operate our business onshore by design, right? And so we're subject to domestic regulation. Um, we're also talking a lot about how we treat client assets. And you know, we are, we are not a, a business that's rehypothecating client assets uh, unless a client explicitly opts into uh, one of our lending programs and asks us to. So we're either you know ledgering assets one-to-one in the Omnibus or in the case of our vaults in the custodian, uh, even holding those assets fully segregated at the client and at the wallet level. Um, finally, of course, just being a publicly- a uh, trading company with audited uh, quarterly you know financial reporting. this is this is crucial. So uh, we've invited a lot of clients to revisit our balance sheet and have been helping them um, to understand sort of questions around uh, our our assets and liabilities. Um, and you know it, it, it's it's also uh, been a topic of conversation around, okay, what's what's our exposure, if any, to to FTX or Alameda? Uh, we have a good answer there, which is that it's de minimis. Um you know, none none the alameda uh, and and De minimis exposure to uh, to FTX. So these have been some of the key things we've been um, kind of talking through and refreshing with, particularly particularly the larger clients. Um, I would say if we kind of go segment by segment on a few of the uh, the verticals that I cover, um the really large asset managers are quite sophisticated about their due diligence. So um, you know no no one that on, on my desk has uh, real exposure uh, material exposure. To, uh, to FTX that's impacting their business. So they are business as usual, but just leaning back into some of those due diligence questions and just re- refreshing. Um, I would say that for the introducing brokers, uh, it's a little bit varying by uh, sub-vertical. The fintechs uh, among the introducing brokers are a little bit more um, kind of risk-seeking and less mature than the, the banks and the broker-dealers. And so some of the fintechs certainly had, um, you know, partnerships with FTX. I think that for, for all the noise that FTX made their actual actual inroads into the market maybe weren't quite as far along as um, people realize so there's really just a handful of firms here who had direct relationships uh, with FTX and we do see a little bit of movement there where some of these fintechs are um, you know sort of rethinking their partnership approach and looking for uh, a, a new partner um, but the vast majority of the of the active fintechs in the market uh, were not working with FTX and so that's um, that's encouraging and we don't view this as for, for the introducing broker category to be a kind of si- systemic issue. Um, for the banks, I would say uh, they're completely insulated from um, from this event they're, they're generally behind the fintechs and in some cases they are um, sidelined due to um, you know awaiting no action letters from well, whether that's the OCC or or the Fed um, but they also have I think a more rigorous due diligence process and so, um, you know, FTX was not a firm that was kind of clearing their due diligence bar to begin with, so they've had they have kind of multiple layers of distance from this, um, and it's kind of business as usual for them. Um, we think that you know next next year will be a big year for for banks. Um, I think taking a step forward, but obviously pending some some kind of no action and, and approval from their primary regulators, I would say that you know the, the 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 closest thing that maybe some of the banks have to being in any way exposed to this would be through uh, private wealth. There are some, obviously, there's some high net worth individuals who were who traders uh, on FTX, and generally those accounts aren't managed uh, through the, the private wealth practice, um, but there are certainly you know some high net worth individuals out there who are impacted by this, who had assets on, uh, on FTX, um, but again, that, that lives kind of outside of the advisor uh, relationship.
4: And Brian, what do you think about the uh, venture capital landscape at the moment? Because even before this happened, we were seeing that, you know, Series A funding had been somewhat still kind of flowing. But Series B and Series C had gotten a lot more difficult, a lot more conditional. It wasn't as uh, founder friendly as it used to be. I mean, how do you think that changes after FTX?
3: Yeah, I think it's important um, to remember. You know, it's going to vary a little bit by stage. So what we're seeing right now, first of all, across we have a a large venture portfolio, nearly 400 um, portfolio companies and protocols we've invested in. The vast majority of of companies are not, um, you know, not affected by this. Uh, They're certainly sending out investor updates and um, letting everybody know kind of where their assets were, um, but. FTX in the grand scheme of things, you know, was was just one player, and so we see business as usual for a lot of the venture portfolio. Um, in terms of valuation specifically, at the early stage, I, 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 we expect this to have minimal impact. Um, the early stage crypto venture deals are generally, you know, very long dated, um, kind of high risk investments, um, and, and they're not sort of, um, you know, these are not valuations that are set by some sort of, you know, comp or multiples based uh, structure where you suddenly have, you know, a big player kind of yanked out of that data set. Um, so we, we don't see this impacting kind of early stage um, markets. You know, if, if there's any effect there, it may be that certain investors who were on the fence about starting to build uh, a portfolio in crypto may, you know, look cl- closer at this market. Um, but we don't see it really impacting the existing uh, kind of kind of deal flow at the early stage or the way that investors are thinking about valuation. I think where it's more um, impactful is at the later stage, uh, particularly if you're in a market uh, or, a, or a business that w- would kind of comp against some of the things that an FTX were doing. Uh, there were, I think, some later stage firms that were um, you know, trading businesses uh, or, or something similar to that that w- would point to F- FTX as kind of a data point to say, you know, here, here's, a, here's a high watermark in terms of uh, multiple that, that would impact my valuation. Um, obviously, that's now a um, you know not part of the data set. and so the, the the key thing to bear in mind here, though, is that we've already been in a sort of calmer market uh, for the last you know I would say six, six plus months. And so we've already seen some of those later stage valuations start to come back back down to earth. Um, so I view this as just sort of more of a continuation of that trend rather than a sharp reversal then
0: yeah, do do you think um with I mean, I guess in the last two years, we saw record uh, fundraising in the venture capital community um, and a lot of that went into crypto. So one would assume a lot of these companies do have good balance sheets and they can weather a winter for another one or two years. Is that a fair perspective or am I missing something there?
3: I think it's case by case, Ben. So um, there there are certainly kind of best in class companies that were, I think, either smart or lucky about the timing of their you know, most, mes- most recent race. So um, there's maybe, a you know, I would say a, a dozen or so, not, you know, not a hundred plus, but there's maybe a dozen or so of these kind of blue chip um, infrastructure types of companies in you know, that are supporting the crypto markets that have very healthy balance sheets and real um, real business models that are gonna be, you know, totally fine. And they might have to now sort of, you know, kick a, kick a longer field goal, so to speak, um, to justify their next round, but they certainly have sufficient runway to go execute against um, against their goals. Um, th- there's obviously another cohort that has kind of been overextended, but again, I would argue that um, the kind of reality call for that cohort has, has already been here. It's not um, changed in any way by the FTX um, sort of event. It's more a function of, you know, they were overextended and maybe didn't have a real business model, um, but we've been dealing with that for for most of this year
0: anyway. And and what about the FTX portfolio? I think they invested in north of two hundred companies. What what happens to those investments? Yeah, I
3: think it's it's premature to make a strong statement about what we're going to see there. This is all playing out in in real time. Um, to to state the obvious, that that's a key part of the overall you know a, a asset side of the balance sheet for FTX. And so um, you know how that plays out and. Uh, in, a, in a state where um, they are needing to come up with assets, you can probably c- connect the dots and make some assumptions that, um, you know, some of those assets might be uh, traded or need, need, to, need to find a new home. Um, but we are, you know, I think in the early days of that, um, of that starting to kind of um, get get untangled. And so it's something we're paying close attention to. Um, and, and you're correct that they do have a, a large venture portfolio. I, w- I will say that, um, well, the count there is large it's probably a bit similar in profile to, to our own uh, portfolio in that the actual principal invested by FTX in a lot of these firms, uh, on average, was not that large. They had a handful of growth stage investments, but the vast majority of the portfolio was kind of early stage, smaller checks, um, minority
0: equity investments. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, was, I was chatting with a fund manager yesterday who had uh, taken money from FTX and they hadn't called all the capital. And they, they were kind of curious what was going to happen next, because they when they make... Their next capital call. Presumably, they don't make the capital call, and at that point, depending on what their agreement says, maybe they then therefore default on that LP position, um, and that potentially goes to to the fund or, or who, who knows. But so many interesting uh, directions this can this can run now, uh, and such a a web um, of of tangled entities and investments and, and things like that to, to untangle over the next many years, I'm sure. Yeah, agree, Greg. Hey, uh, Brian, uh, there's been a few articles
5: basically pointing out the fact that FTX took investments from various venture uh, and private equity funds and then seemed to invest a like amount back in their fund. Um, And I'm just curious, is there anything, can we make anything of this? Is that, you know, common? I would expect it's not, but you're much closer to the situation.
3: Yeah, it's it's a good
5: question. I I would
3: say... um it's not extraordinarily common I think for you know for for some of these funds when you have a kind of billionaire founder um, they 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 will um, you know in, encourage their portfolio founders to invest in the fund or create kind of special access for them um, but I don't think you know the the more kind of accusatory take on this might be that there's some sort of a you know pay to play there uh, or like a a kind of strong arming trade, and i don't I don't think that's the case. Um, I think you just have a unique situation where there was a company that um, you know appeared to be on a meteor trajectory and was um, raising a lot of money um, and you know took in capital from a lot of large kind of blue chip investors. Um, and then also on the other side, uh, you know a, a multi-billionaire founder who wanted to deploy his assets. Um, and that would be you know a very common thing for for someone of that. Of that profile to do would be to go get kind of allocation and a lot of the top um, of the top funds. So I don't I don't view that as um, I don't view that as like a you know transactional thing that's an that's an anomaly. It's sort of um, it's it, in my mind it's a
0: little bit of a a, a, a normal thing. And, and David Greg, you, you guys have obviously been on the various the calls with clients this week. Like, what are you guys hearing? Is it kind of aligned with um, with Greg and Brian? Yeah, I would say
4: that uh, from some of the client conversations I've heard from, uh, clients are actually surprised that the price action isn't actually worse. Uh, surprisingly, you know, we've seen that Bitcoin ETH has actually uh, held up rather well, and it's actually hasn't even dropped below kind of levels that we saw in uh, May and June, for example, when we had the other previous deleveraging crisis which in some ways kind of reflects that, uh, of course, you know, you know, we, we've already seen a lot of excess risk kind of washed out from the system, but it's still kind of painful to watch some of these uh, you know, contagion events still occur. Like we now have a sense that a lot of this was actually related uh, to those events back then. So you know, these issues are still kind of reverberating through the market. Um, but certainly I think uh, what you know, Greg and Brian said that this is rather contained to kind of one entity A centralized player here rather than being uh, an indictment of the technology itself. I think it is certainly true among our
5: clients. Yeah, I'm having very similar conversations. Um, The one thing that everyone's very focused on is, you know, is there going to be contagion? How systemic is this? Uh, Obviously, this is a black box. We're learning things, you know, every day, hour, minute. Um, But at this point, it looks like uh, there should be minimal contagion. Um, this looks to be an issue between Alameda, FTX. Um, it seems like the losses will sit on uh, FTX users, so that's mostly retail, um, high-frequency traders, uh, and some institutions, though those institutions don't seem to be large enough to, uh, to again, create a systemic risk here. Um, Having the market makers involved, though, does change uh, the crypto market, at least in the near term. We're seeing uh, liquidity recede, um, spreads are widening. And I think this makes sense if you think about it. One of the largest liquidity pools we had uh, essentially disappeared. Um, and a, uh, a number of you know market makers and providers of liquidity uh, were caught up in that. So I don't think it's a permanent change to the market, but it'll likely take some time um, until things return to what we knew is normal.
0: Yeah, so a really good point there. And it was interesting. There was um, something in, on uh, on Twitter this morning saying that Binance has sent a load of emails out to people that have been accessing uh, their site via a VPN. Um, so they would I think have seven days to stop doing that. Uh, and I think what we saw is a lot of the liquidity move from FTX to Binance, uh, certainly for the PERP, uh, PERP liquidity. Then obviously some came to Coinbase and, and to Uniswap and other places. But for those firms that aren't uh, in um, the right jurisdictions, for them now not to be able to trade on Binance um, due to this kind of VPN block, it means that spreads might potentially move out even further. Would you agree with that?
5: Yeah, I think that could happen. We could also see a, a bifurcation of the, the market-making uh players if you will, the ones that are very technology forward um and distributed, uh will likely still be able to access that liquidity on Binance. Uh those that maybe don't have the tech staff um or are not in the right jurisdictions uh won't and you know they'll be at a competitive disadvantage.
0: Yeah it's gonna be interesting to see how this plays out it feels like it's gonna be a long road ahead. Um and, and also I guess just certainly worth saying like our Thoughts go out to everybody that did have capital on, on FTX. I think this was a very much a black swan that wasn't, at least for me, wasn't expected. Um, and it's, it's touched a lot of, lot of different people in many different ways. So hope everybody is, is muddling through as best they can. Um, Greg, I want to transition through here now to look at some of our trade flows. It's been a really, really busy week. What are we seeing on the exchange? Yeah, it's been
5: a very, very busy week. Um, so we're obviously seeing... Uh, you know, elevated volumes on exchange makes you know, a ton of sense, given all the, the volatility in the news headlines. Um, the majority of flow has obviously been in the larger cap tokens, BTC and ETH. Uh, we are seeing quite a bit of interest in Solana. And we talked about this before. That token's been hit particularly hard, given its proximity to FTX, Alameda. Um, most of the flow we're seeing on the desk is to the sell side. Um, I think people are, are looking to quickly de-risk that situation. Um, it's my personal view that it'll be a while um, until that protocol is able to recover, just given the, the technical sell pressure that we're seeing. Um, if we like, just look at the past seven days, one remarkable data point is every institutional client type was a net seller with the exception of just two and that's crypto and traditional VCs. Um, those folks have been using this weakness to buy their favorite tokens in, in really good size. Um, now, they clearly have a longer time horizon, and as you know, a few people have said here, this very unfortunate situation has absolutely nothing to do with the fundamental technology. If anything, the news there has actually been really good so I think it makes a lot of sense that you're seeing these longer term players um, that are very well capitalized uh, come in and, and take advantage of these levels. Uh, the other interesting thing uh, that I'd like to point out is interest to short tokens has like absolutely skyrocketed. You know, we've seen borrow rates climb as a result. Um, if you look at perp funding rates across a variety of tokens. They've gone deeply negative. Uh, Short November basis on the CME is around 45% annualized. You know, was as high as hundred. these are just astounding numbers. Uh, Now, you know, I'm not gonna call a bottom and you know, (laughs) that never ends well. Um, But in my almost 20 years of trading, I've also never seen the entire market get short at the right time. Uh, So these flows may lend some medium term support to the market. And also, you know, for those that don't want to play directionally, there's some great market neutral opportunities here and basis and PERP funding trades. So, you know, this is obviously a very unfortunate situation. I agree crypto would be significantly higher um, given the turn in the macro uh, had this not happened. But there are some dislocations that are uh, you know, very attractive for those willing to step in.
0: That was the uh, the best not calling a bottom, calling a bottom ever, Greg. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, let's. That, uh, I, I definitely agree. Right? It was it's certainly a, a centralized exchange um, issue and event as opposed to DeFi, and it's great to see that a lot of DeFi has been operating uh, perfectly well during this. Certainly, DeFi on Ethereum at least. So we'll, we'll see. Hopefully, that will continue, and uh, and I'm sure some of these ARBs and some of these uh, dislocations will, will probably rationalise over the over the coming weeks. And um, so, Alessandro, would love to to kind of move on to you now. And there were a couple of parts of the FTX events where some things started to happen on-chain and people were trying to speculate exactly what was going on there. I think it was Saturday morning I woke up to, to kind of Twitter going mad again. So curious to kind of hear your thoughts of what's been going on on-chain uh, post the FTX events.
6: Uh, yes, Ben. So I think uh, from our team, we are looking at on-chain events on three different uh, uh point of views at the moment uh for your question like uh, friday evening we saw some transaction coming out from uh, ftx uh, wallet and uh immediately all the twitter was like uh, on it and uh, was really on the spotlight and uh apparently there was some uh, or insider job or uh, an exploit or their cold storages that drained uh, uh more than 400 million dollars worth of tokens These tokens have been since then shuffled around different blockchains, different protocols, and they are now kind of almost 100% in ETH. So, this address, uh, which is the, uh, I I call it FTX hacker, has now 228,000 ETH, which is the 35th largest holder uh, on uh, the old blockchain, according to Etherscan. So it's a very significant amount that could have an uh, uh, impact uh, in general on uh, on flows. But uh, it is also my opinion that uh, with such a spotlight on this address and uh, uh, also the more difficulties to access to Tornado Cash, like a previous solution used uh, often in these cases, might be very difficult for the hacker to get rid of these funds. So it would definitely be interesting to
0: see how this uh, play out. And um, I think the I'm other point... 100- Yes, sorry, 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 just curious. It's interesting that owning thirty million dollars of BNB, uh, like the ETH makes sense. Um, the Pax Gold, I guess that could be um, could could be stopped by by Paxos. I was I was quite curious why BNB. Any any thoughts around that?
6: Um, no, not exactly. So it's it just uh, this. It seems like to having shuffled funds over different blockchains or so bridging around the binas chain. Uh, Polygon, uh, uh, Tron. So I think that uh, might be a solution in the short term to also have uh, uh, got out of tokens that could be the uh, frozen, like uh, a company that would freeze these accounts. So I don't have a good explanation about it, but uh, it's definitely interesting to see if these will be also converted into it as the, they're doing with all the other tokens that they collected. And uh, one of the particular things that was interesting was that uh, um, they were trying to drain um, USDT from the Tron chain from FTX wallets, but because of the address, they didn't have any uh, Tron to pay the gas for the fees. They basically got funded by a Kraken account, which uh, uh, by regulation, like a KYC, on all the does KYC on all the accounts. So uh, we got also some tweets from Kraken saying that they, they identified the user that is behind this address. So we might get to a uh, identification uh, soon on who is this uh, uh, participant, and see if it was like a insider job or some other third party uh, exp- exploiter.
0: Wow. So this story takes another twist. We have a new character introduced to the uh, to the script uh, for what yeah. will almost certainly be a film in the next uh, next few years. I'm sure. Uh, along with 3AC and, and Luna and, and all the other things that 22 has, uh, 2022 has delivered us. Um, thanks so much, Alessandro. That was uh, great insights. Now, David, um, we, we never have you last, so apologies for leaving leaving you to last today. Uh, huge week in macro. Um, curious, kind of what are we, what are we, what are you seeing?
4: Yeah, I mean, I would say the timing of this confidence crunch is unfortunate for, of course, many different reasons. Uh, but you know, we were actually seeing that with the macro environment. It was actually going to be pretty supportive for risk assets had it not been for the FTX event, uh, particularly since you know we saw that the stronger dollar trend finally broke uh, last week. Like if you're looking at the uh, DXY, which is the multilateral index, uh, for the last two months, there's been a 110 floor there. It broke definitively below that. A lot of that had to do with positioning ahead of last week's inflation print, uh, which created a turning point for CTAs in particular to actually start selling dollars. And we saw that fundamentally, inflation had actually gone from this, you know, uh, above 8% kind of level to 7.7%, actually, in, uh, in October's print. Now, obviously, I think what matters there isn't necessarily just the level. I mean, the direction of travel is really the most important thing. Uh, but the fact that we actually came in below expectations was huge. Uh, so I think that those kinds of events actually uh, actually saw that for a lot of traditional risk assets, actually started to rally. I think crypto would have been a part of that had it not been for this event, unfortunately. Instead, what we're seeing right now is that stablecoins, as a percent of the uh, total market cap of crypto, is actually dominating at around 18% level. Uh, Of course, BTC and ETH actually are taking more of a dominant position as well. That's uh, above 60% right now. Uh, And a lot of that, of course, has to do with the fact that people are bringing assets onto exchange and selling them. Typically, of course, uh, bringing assets onto exchange is seen more as a, uh, you know, as a more confidence-inducing kind of event as people kind of retract away from exchanges to sell and put into cold storage. But this is actually acting in reverse due to the events of last week. So things have changed. I would say that at this point, uh, the you know decoupling between crypto and uh, traditional assets is kind of unfortunately moving the opposite direction of what we would like. We want to see it decoupled, but we want to see it decouple in favor of crypto assets actually having more idiosyncratic catalysts. Uh, but I think what we're getting right now is that the unfortunate crypto winter that we're in, is going to be extended and it's going to be there for a couple of months longer. Probably uh, it's possible that could even last through 2023. Um, And it's, you know, even if we see a Fed pivot, for example, we're going to need to see probably some other idiosyncratic catalyst to actually jolt cryptocurrencies out of this. It's still probably going to directionally move in line with other risk assets, uh, but we definitely won't see the same kind of outperformance we saw the last couple of months.
0: Uh, and, and, and with regards to inflation, obviously, uh, an encouraging print for the for the markets last week. Is there a chance that we see that, that direction of travel reverse and we see a higher print next month or the month after?
4: Yeah, that's a really good question, Ben. We are actually going to have another CPI print ahead of the next uh, Fed FOMC decision, and that's going to be coming out on December 13th. The Fed decision is going to be on the 14th. Uh, so we know that uh, for where the the Federal Reserve is concerned, you know, they have more data prints kind of fall back on. Of course, we actually just saw PPI just this morning, uh, and uh, the numbers are consistent with what we're getting from CPI. So I do think that it's not going to see the trend revert. We probably have already seen the peak inside of inflation. I believe that probably where supply chains are concerned, it still kind of represents probably a quarter of what we're kind of getting inside of here. Uh, and with the movements we're getting inside of China reopening, uh, probably the, the conflict inside of Russia and Ukraine, starting to see that uh, the, the Russians are, are actually being more amenable to providing more food to the rest of the world. Certainly, that should actually start to alleviate some of the pressure here. I think also from the services side of things, it's not being quite as sticky as it was previously. Um, but I would still say that where markets are concerned, we've already seen a lot of uh, market movements ahead of this already kind of planning for a more, uh, let's, let's say, challenging Q1 in 2023, because we're still expecting that we're going to see a recession inside of the U.S., whether it's going to be mild, whether it's going to, whether it's not, I think that's really kind of a big question. A lot of that's going to be engineered by the Fed. But my expectations right now is this is going to put the Fed on a lower path. I don't think we're going to get, you know, the same 75 base point hikes that we've been getting at every meeting so far. Uh, but at this point, I don't see the Fed necessarily letting off of the rhetorical pressure that they've been putting on market so far.
0: Thanks, David. And before we wrap for today, I just want to ask a couple of final questions for everyone. Uh, Greg, Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Two questions are, is more regulation coming and is it a good thing? We'd love to hear from everybody very quickly.
2: Yeah, I can go first. I, I think from the institutional perspective, the answer is yes. And yes, overwhelmingly, it's, it's, it's a good thing for the institutional uh, cohort.
3: I, I, I agree with that strongly. I think the key thing we're looking for is, and 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 trying to help um, shape the educational discussion around, is ensuring that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So um, we are absolutely excited for a, a stronger and clearer regulatory framework in the U.S. that that does um, lead to more protection for, for clients. Um, we want to make sure that in doing so, we we preserve some of the most powerful and important characteristics of crypto, including decentralization and supporting DeFi protocols.
4: Yeah, I think it's much more clear now to the uh, regulators on Capitol Hill that, you know, they can't allow uh, a lot of users to actually go offshore to other exchanges that are unregulated that can be subject to blowups like this. Uh, I am kind of concerned that probably uh, over the next year, we're still going to see a lot of the same debates that we're beginning this year in terms of concerns over censorship, whether, you know, we still need to kind of see things gated because a lot of people don't believe that should be the case for, at at least on the blockchain level. Um, So that's still going to kind of run into conflict. But I think for a lot of the probably less controversial stuff, like collateral transparency, I think that uh, could probably happen in 2023.
5: Yeah, I'm a yes and yes as well. Um, I, uh, I think it's absolutely coming. And I think so long as it's done uh, intelligently, it'll be fantastic for the industry.
0: That is a wrap for this week. A special thank you to Brian and Greg for joining and sharing your insights with us. And as always, thank you to Alessandro, Greg and David and our fantastic production team. Let's hope this coming week is a little easier than last. Good luck out there and stay safe. To view this episode and learn more, check out the research app and follow us on Twitter at Coinbase Insto. Both links can be found in the podcast description.
4: All statements and analysis correspond to the date of this recording. This recording is only intended for sophisticated investors. This recording should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Coinbase nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any of the information contained in this recording. The views expressed in this recording are not necessarily those of Coinbase. Coinbase is not providing any financial, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations. The receipt of this recording by any listener is not to be taken as the giving of investment advice by Coinbase to that listener.